Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 178, Puritan Countermagic Revisited. Hi listeners, this is Jake. Before I kick us off this week, I'm going to admit that I've been struggling to get much work done for the podcast. One of our typical episodes takes many hours of work to prepare, between tracking down sources, reading, and writing a 10-20 to page script. As we all live through this pandemic season and practice social distancing, I just haven't found the time to get that research done. In part, it's because I, like a lot of people, have been distracted by nearly obsessively tracking news about the virus's progress. It's also partly because of my job. On social media, you'll see lots of stories about people who are trapped at home and bored because of social distancing who dive into their hobbies with renewed vigor. I'm experiencing almost the opposite, because through my day job, I provide support for doctors and hospitals. While many people are seeing their work slow down or even losing their jobs, I'm as busy as I've ever been. While I'm distracted, we have several author interviews lined up for the next few weeks, and I'll continue working on new episode scripts as I can. In the meantime, you'll see that we're going to run a few more classic episodes, i.e. reruns, during this strange and unprecedented time. This week, I'm going to share my interview with Dan Neff, curator of the 17th century Fairbanks House Museum in Dedham. We spoke back in August 2018 about the evidence he's uncovered that generations of residents, perhaps spanning hundreds of years, used charms and hex marks in an attempt to ward off evil forces that might have included witches, demons, and even disease. But before I talk about Puritan countermagic, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Devil's Dominion, Magic and Religion in Early New England by Richard Godbeer. I picked up this 1992 book to give me some background before first interviewing Dan Neff. Among other things, Godbeer argues that the Puritan interest in countermagic arises from a conflict within Puritan theology. Church teachings were ambivalent about the source of evil and temptation. Was evil found within each person's heart, making the struggle to live morally internal? Or was it found in Satan and demons who walked the earth in physical form and had to be battled externally? If it was the latter, then the otherwise good and pious Puritans who turned to charms and hex marks were only using all the weapons in their arsenal to hold off the evil forces that walked among them in the world. Here's how the publisher describes the book. The Devil's Dominion examines the use of folk magic by ordinary men and women in early New England. The book describes in vivid detail the magical techniques used by settlers and the assumptions which underlaid them. Godbeer argues that lay folk were generally far less consistent in their beliefs and actions than their ministers would have liked. Even church members sometimes turned to magic. The Devil's Dominion reveals that the relationship between magical and religious belief was complex and ambivalent. Some members of the community rejected magic altogether, but others did not. Godbeer argues that the controversy surrounding astrological prediction in early New England paralleled clerical condemnation of magical practice, and that the different perspectives on witchcraft engendered by magical tradition and Puritan doctrine often caused confusion and disagreement when New Englanders sought legal punishment of witches. And for our upcoming event this week, I have not one, but two different talks coming up this week that are going to be held virtually via Zoom. Come on! Zoom, 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 
First up is a talk on Tuesday evening from the Old North Speaker Series, which closes out Women's History Month. Here's how Old North describes it. Join us for a virtual celebration of influential women, past and present. Old North Church and Historic Site is excited to offer its first digital speaker series program, 10 on 10, Women in the Workforce, on March 31st at 6.30 p.m. In this interactive webinar-style program, you'll hear from 10 powerhouse women working in Boston today as they each offer a five-minute spotlight presentation on a visionary woman from Massachusetts history. Presentations will explore the evolution of women's professional identities and the ways in which each of these women have paved the way for equal rights. Afterward, stay online for a community chat about intersectional feminism, pay equity, and what we can each do today to advocate for equal rights for all in the workplace. Let's commemorate one of 2020's Equal Pay Days, March 31st, with revelry and solidarity. Next up, we have a lunchtime talk on Friday from Historic Beverly. In normal times, we might think that Beverly's too far from Boston to count for our upcoming events, but since we're only featuring online events right now, anything goes. In fact, we can almost make it count under the normal rules, because the United Shoe Machinery Corporation used to be headquartered on Federal Street and Boston's Financial District. That's right. This talk is about the United Shoe Machinery Company, which between 1899 and 1976 made everything from shoes to tanks to satellite components in its Beverly factory. As part of Historic Beverly's First Friday series, they'll be looking at the role of the shoe in World War II by examining documents from the company archives. Here's how they describe the event. During this first Friday, we'll be looking at telegraph communications that the United Shoe Boston offices received during World War II, including messages from staff and factory owners and shareholders. These correspondents help paint a picture of the landscape of Europe as enemy forces made their way across the country and will give an unseen perspective into the lives of local European citizens during the wartime period. We'll have links to the Zoom connection details for both events and this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 178. Now, before we get to the interview, I have to offer my thanks to our latest Patreon sponsor, Kathy M., as well as Victoria G., who made a generous contribution using our PayPal link. Supporters like Victoria and Kathy make it possible for us to create Hub History. Their generosity pays for our web hosting and security, online audio processing tools, podcast media hosting, and more recently, our automated transcriptions. I know that this is a tough time for a lot of people, and there are a lot of causes out there more important than a podcast. But if you're in a position to do so, we'd appreciate your support. If you're up for it, go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. As a reminder, the Fairbanks House is recognized as the oldest wood-framed building in North America, and it's probably the oldest surviving building in Massachusetts. It's located on East Street in Dedham, just a few blocks outside the city limits of the Hyde Park section of Boston. However, when the first English family settled along a lazy bend in the Charles River in 1635, the town they first called Contentment was a long day's journey upriver from their neighbors in Watertown. Settler Moore Carew remembered Miles Courtney's comment about the long trip. The river took many turns, so that it was a burden the continual turning about. 
West, east, and north we turned on that same meadow and progressed none, so that I, rising in the boat, saw the river flowing just across a bit of grass in a place where I knew we had passed through nigh an hour before. Moor, said Miles then to me, the river is like its master, our good King Charles of sainted memory. It promises over much, but gets you nowhere. The next year, those early settlers signed the Dedham Covenant. Jonathan Fairbanks, first owner of the Fairbanks House, was the 31st signer. Now, as we talk about belief in witchcraft and folk magic in the Fairbanks family and other early New Englanders, keep in mind that this isn't a sign that they were irreligious. As you'll see from this week's Boston Book Club pick, belief in magic did not run counter to 17th century Puritan belief. In fact, religious belief could reinforce belief in magic. Many Puritans treated the devil as a literal presence in the world that was actively trying to harm them physically and spiritually by afflicting them bodily, such as with disease, or diverting them from righteousness. Our choice to air this interview again was also influenced by the big project that Nikki and I are managing in our personal lives. Over the past several months, we've been in the process of gutting and remodeling the first floor of our house. After a slow start, thanks to Boston's Byzantine permitting process, everything was moving along really well, until the point when the supplier we'd ordered our kitchen cabinets from suddenly closed due to coronavirus concerns. As things have slowed down, we ended up with the new framing left exposed for longer than we expected. While the walls were open, we incorporated some of the practices that we learned about from Dan Neff into our own house, including introducing hex marks and depositing a spiritual midden. We'll share an example of our handiwork in this week's show notes. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy as we talk about folk magic with Fairbanks House curator Dan Neff. All right, we just want to welcome Daniel Neff, the curator of the Fairbanks House Museum in Dedham, to the show. Hello. Daniel, Nikki and I are lucky enough to live very close to the Fairbanks House Museum, so we've actually visited there a few times. For our listeners who aren't familiar or maybe have never been there, can you start out by explaining what the Fairbanks House is and why it's important? The Fairbanks House is the oldest wooden structure standing in North America. Uh, it was built in 1637, added to significantly over the years. Uh, the last portion added around 1800. It was lived in by eight generations of one family, the Fairbanks. The la- So 1637, Jonathan and Grace Fairbanks moved to uh, Dedham with their, s- or moved into the house with their six children. And then the last generation, a lady named Rebecca Fairbanks moved out in 1904. And at that time, it became a museum, and it has been a museum still owned and operated by the Fairbanks family today. So, Daniel, you mentioned that the house was built in 1637, but for those of us who have been there, or if you see a picture online, the brickwork in the chimney says 1636. So, can you tell us how that uh, discrepancy came to be and how you know, like, how old the house actually is? Absolutely. So for many years, they did believe it was built in 1636, uh, because if you look at the town records, that's the year the family was admitted into the town of Dedham. Side note, the, the town was founded in 1635 by roughly 35, 36 families. Uh, the Fairbanks are the first family admitted into the town after it's founded. So they're not technically founding members, but they're as close as you can get. Uh, so they were admitted into town in 36. So, for a while, without looking any further into it, the assumption was they must have built the house in 36. 
Uh, but doing a little more research um, that didn't quite quite line up right, so uh, we wanted to make sure we were you know could still hold the claim of oldest uh, wooden structure. So uh, ways back, uh, well before I got here, they did what's called dendrochronology, tree ring dating. So what they did is they took a core sample out of several of the most important beams, and particularly the uh, the summer beam in the hall. Uh, which the summer beam is the beam that holds up the rest of the house. So it is by necessity the first thing that goes up when you're building. So it means like it, if however old the summer beam is, that's how old the house is. Uh, so yeah, they took out a core sample. They looked at the rings, not just the number of rings, but the width of the rings compared it to other trees, weather data, uh, did some other very complicated stuff uh, that it was uh, done by Oxford. So I assume they knew what they were doing. And uh, they figured out that that tree that the summer beam was made from was felled in 1637. Back then, they did not age your season wood before they used it. Uh, so if the tree is felled in 1637, that is the year they would have used it to build the house. And so uh, we've been, you know, since we did the gender chronology, we've been pretty confident that it was 1637. And actually, if you keep going in those town records, it lines up because... Uh, 1636, they're admitted into town in 36, but it's in like early to mid fall and they wouldn't have had time to build a whole house before the first freeze. Hmm. And so, and actually back then, um, it's a lot easier to move a large tree with a sled than it is with a cart. So they would have actually wanted to wait. They would have over the winter felled all the trees they needed, moved them to the site with sleds. And then as soon as the ground thawed in the spring of 37, they'd start building and they work fast enough back then; they would be done by the uh, by the fall of thirty seven, and the Fairbanks could move in. So, actually, the town records and the Denver chronology line up, which is really nice. That doesn't always happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I guess before we move on into later generations, what were the Fairbanks doing in Dedham in sixteen thirty seven? So, how did they fit into the fabric of the community back then? What were their occupations? Uh, that's really interesting because I've been, I've been doing quite a bit of research on like why they came over in the first place, what they did once they got here. So if you look at Jonathan Fairbanks, the sort of founder of the family, um, he, back in Yorkshire, he was a wood turner. Uh, he built things using a lathe and he specialized in building spinning wheels, which if you look at Yorkshire, um, there's really only one industry in Yorkshire in the 1600s, sheep. You have people raise sheep. They harvest wool, they make, you know, clothing and other items out of the wool. So being somebody who makes spinning wheels is useful, but you're not the only guy doing it. Um, so a variety of things sort of combined to make it really unappealing for the Fairbanks to stay in England. Uh, first off, Jonathan inherits no land, and there's no land to buy. England's overcrowded. There's a new tax on wood, which is what he uses for his livelihood, and there's some new persecutions of people who don't agree with the Anglican Church, which he definitely does not agree with the Anglican Church. So he's got a few different reasons that he doesn't want he himself, his wife, and his six kids growing up, you know, living, continuing to live or grow up in England. So they come over here. Uh, while they make it to Boston first, we think somewhere around 1633, and he meets a guy named John Dwight. And uh, John Dwight is a wool comber. So a wool comber and a guy who makes spinning wheels are going to interact in some fashion, right? Um, so John Dwight is one of the founding members of Dedham. Um, and so shortly after they, uh, I think what happened is shortly after they formed, 
they realized that nobody in the community was a wood turner. Nobody knew how to build spinning wheels. And they're all making their, they all want to make their own clothes because importing stuff from England would be really expensive. So they're like, well, we need a guy. And John Dwight says, well, I, I happen to know a guy who's at least Puritan leaning. He's not full blown Puritan, but he's Puritan leaning and he builds spinning wheels. So I think that's how Jonathan ends up being the first new, uh, addition into the, the Dedham community. Uh, he has that skill set they needed. Um, and so he, from what I understand, he, he was fairly wealthy actually by, uh, by doing that. Uh, based on tax records, the Fairbanks house was the third largest house in Dedham in the 1600s, uh, after the magistrate and the priest. <laughs> so we have done an episode, uh, actually very early on, on Jason Fairbanks and the yep. murder mystery surrounding him. Mm-hmm. So could you refresh our listeners on how the, the Fairbanks trial impacted the family's finances and how that perhaps preserved the house to the state we have today. Yeah. Um, that's a, uh, that you, you said though, I always like to say there are three things that have kept the house where it is today. Um, it was very well built. It was well taken care of and blind luck. Hmm. Um, and actually part of that blind luck is the timing of what happened with Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, uh, the guy in charge of the house at that time is Jason's older brother, Ebenezer Fairbanks Jr. And Jr. is not very good at running a farm. Uh, by this point they've stopped the woodworking that his ancestors did and they're really just running a farm. But Ebenezer Jr. doesn't do it very well and he's having a lot of financial issues. And then Jason is, um, put on trial. And found guilty, and both Jason and the rest of the Fairbanks family continued to insist Jason was innocent. Um, even after he was executed, Ebenezer continued to insist that his young brother was, was innocent. He was framed, and he actually started self-publishing books about how innocent Jason was. And what little was left of the family fortune, he dried up putting out all these books and pamphlets and everything about how his already executed brother was innocent. And this was all. So, um, Ebenezer Jr. And Jason together, uh, sort of simultaneously ruined the family's fortune and the family's reputation. And, uh, so the silver lining though, is that, uh, the house gets inherited by three of Ebenezer Jr.'s daughters, Prudence, Sally, and Nancy. Um, and they also inherit his debt. Uh, so they end up um, selling off most of the, the family's land holdings to pay off his debts. And then they don't really have much money. They make their lives as uh, their livelihood as uh, spinsters. Um, and uh, so they make enough money to get by, but not enough money to, um, shall we say, indulge in the practices of the what people often call the Victorian era. Um, you know, Victorians are into bigger, better, newer, fancier. Who cares if it's older or historic? Tear it down, build a nicer one. Uh, while everybody else is doing that, the Fairbanks, the three sisters living in the house, um, can just barely maintain what they have. Um, so if Ebenezer Jr. and Jason hadn't ruined everything, um, later generations would have been able to afford ruining everything on purpose. So, uh, <laughs> so the, the Jason Fairbanks trial was in the very early years of the 19th century, 1801 or yeah, two, 1801. Yeah. So when did the sisters take over management of the house? So, uh, Ebenezer Jr., uh, lives until 1832. And so when he dies, he officially leaves the house to his wife and three daughters, three of his five daughters. Um, 
two of his daughters did manage to get married and move away. Um, but the Good three that them. never got, yeah. <laughs> uh, the three that never got married, um, inherited the house with their mother. And then, uh, their mother, Mary Fairbanks passed away a few years after Ebenezer Jr. And then they got full custody of the house. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was already getting into the mid 1800s by the time they're fully in charge. And by that point, the, the, uh, the idea of, um, home improvement was really starting to take off, shall we say. And, uh, but yeah, like I said, they just maintained what they had at most. They added some wallpaper to a couple of rooms. That was about it. So getting into the Victorian era, they're still living in what's essentially, at least at its core, still a very 17th century house. Yes, very much. And even uh, Rebecca, who um, was the niece of the three sisters, she's the last one to live there. She moves out in 1904. When she moves out, there is still uh, no electricity, no running water, and no heat except what's provided by the fireplaces. So even to 1904, it is effectively a first period house. So, Daniel, we invited you to come and talk with us today after we saw you speak at History Camp last month. You are presenting on the topic of ghosts and graffiti, superstition and belief at the Fairbanks house. So, since you took over as curator, you've discovered evidence or maybe reinterpreted evidence that shows that somebody who lived in the house and maybe over several generations believed in a form of powerful folk magic. Can you tell us sort of how you started down that, that route? When I started as curator, the prior curator showed me uh, that there was what's called a hex mark over the fireplace and uh, talked about how the, the, the idea was the hex mark protected uh, the house and the evil spirits couldn't go past a properly drawn hex mark or carved hex mark. Um, and so you put it over the chimney because the chimney being always open is a very easy entry point for evil spirits, witches, that sort of thing. And uh, she also mentioned the, uh, that they had found shoes in the wall. Uh, which she had done some research on and found that they were thought to protect the house from witches. But that was about the extent of it. There was this hex mark over the fireplace and there was these shoes to protect from witches. Okay. So, um, I already had some background in this stuff before I worked at the Fairbanks house. I had spent three years giving ghost tours up in Boston. Um, as a, as a teenager, I was fascinated with occult history and weird stuff and well, still am. Like all teenagers uh, are. Yeah, right. Uh, right <laughs> yeah, but I never really lost it and I, I ended up making it kind of part of my profession. So, um, <laughs> and so, uh, I already had sort of a, a rough idea of how this stuff would, would look. Um, and then I, you know, because I already knew there was some in the house from that one over the fireplace that was, uh, already identified. I started looking around um, <clears throat> to see if there's anything else. And sure enough, um, it seems like every time I go looking, I find more stuff that uh, there's no other explanation for other than this is um, hex marks or if you want to get academic apotropaic markings. Ooh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what what makes a hex mark? If somebody's looking at the wall of an old house how will they know that's what they're seeing? Yeah, so um, that can be the tricky part. Um, there's a variety of different kinds, and um, really you need to understand the context because uh, they're not the only thing that would be carved into walls. You have uh, children and teenagers with knives and spare time that could just write random things on the walls. You have uh, what are called carpenter's marks, which are used in the construction of the house. And you have all sorts of other things. Um, so you have to sort of filter through all this other stuff that the marks could be. 
and then you compare them to other marks, and the best uh, sort of place to start is English churches, because you know the marks there aren't going to be, or unlikely, to be things other than something uh, religious. Um, and so the common ones are um, uh, what's called like a, a pinwheel or hex foil design, um, which you see a lot in German, Dutch, uh, Pennsylvania decorations. And the general thought is there it's meant more decorative, but if you see them carved into a wall in a New England building, that's more protective than decorative. Those are the ones that look like a, a circle with the arcs within it that, that make up sort of a daisy shape? Uh, usually a series of um, circles or ovals that interlock and look vaguely like a, a daisy or a, um, kind of like spokes on a wheel. Uh, that's very common in uh, German-Dutch um, based cultures like in Pennsylvania, they're used mostly decoratively. But if you see them carved into a wall up in New England, that's more likely to be a protective mark. Uh, you'll also see circles, uh, X's. Um, what's one that's very common in the Fairbanks house is a series of three X's. Um, my understanding is that it's always three because uh, when Jesus was crucified, there's three crosses. It's him and two other guys. So three crosses, three X's. And the so X, the X, the X stands for a cross in that context. Yes, and uh, having done some research more recently, it's a specific cross. It's Saint Andrew's cross. Uh, Saint Andrew was one of the a lot of saints um, who were about to be crucified insisted they be crucified in some weird way because they didn't want to die the same way as Jesus. So, like Peter was crucified upside down. Um, Saint Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped uh, cross instead of a cross-shaped cross. Um, and so the, the X is St. Andrew's cross. And that's particularly interesting in the context of the Fairbanks house. Cause one of St. Andrew's things was, um, a protection from disease and from that sort of thing. So, uh, and we think that might be why there's so many hex marks. So yeah, it's it, a lot of its context. If they're on door frames, window frames, uh, near the chimney, those are much more likely to be hex marks than, standard graffiti items or carpenter's marks. Um, so you kind of combine location and context and shapes. And if you know what you're looking at, it's, it can be pretty clear. Um, another interesting hex mark shape is, um, it looks like a W or an M, but it's actually meant to be a pair of V's either upside right or upside down. Um, and those stand for, uh, Virgo Virgin. I always pronounce this wrong. Virgo Virginium which is Latin, and I'm probably butchering it. I don't know Latin. But anyway, it effectively means virgin of virgins. It's asking for the Virgin Mary's assistance, um, which I thought was particularly interesting. There's several cases of the double V in the Fairbanks house, and they're Puritan uh, and later Protestant. Um, and I feel like asking for Virgin Mary's help is a decidedly Catholic thing to do. Yeah, actually, the St. Andrew's cross really sounds surprisingly Catholic for the Puritan descended Fairbanks. Yeah, exactly. And so um, the the combination of those two um, has led me to think there must be, and the sheer quantity of hex marks in the house uh, has led me to believe that it, it seems like there's a level of desperation involved. Um, sort of uh, whatever they're trying to do, they're really, really desperate to do it um, with these marks. So I guess before we get into some of the specific markings you found, 
what are these meant to guard against or what are these these marks for who are they trying to keep out if you put a a hex mark over the mantle the hex marks are are predominantly to protect the house and the people in it from evil spirits uh demonic forces the devil himself um actually another uh hex mark that's seen in several places in the house is what's called a demon trap. And it's a series of, uh, hatch marks, you know, um, inner, inner, uh, crossing lines, uh, usually very complicated. And, uh, they believe that demons, um, if they saw something like this, they were compelled to trace the complex pattern with their finger. And the idea was you would make the pattern so complex that the demon would spend the whole night tracing and by the time he was done, the sun was up and he would have to go back from whence he came and couldn't bother your family. So, yeah, that was the idea that there was uh, Puritanism and the early versions of Protestantism that came from it uh, sort of believe that, like, the devil and his agents were both real and actively trying to sway you towards evil and trying to hurt you. And so, even though the church itself thought these... All magic was Satan's magic. There was no other kind of magic, according to the Puritan church, officially. But then you have all these Puritan people who, uh, their ancestors used folk magic, and so they're using folk magic kind of on the down low. They're pretending they're not doing it, but they're all doing it. <laughs> and so it's it's uh, this sort of weird combination of old, uh, old, really old versions of Catholicism and really old versions of pagan ideas kind of seeping down through the generations to Puritans who are pretending they're not doing it, but absolutely doing it. And, uh, they, because again, they feel all these things are real and they're going to use folk or white magic, um, or apotropaic magic to protect themselves from all these evils. Uh, but of course the most common evil was witches. They're, they're everywhere. So speaking of witches, I was fascinated by your explanation of the shoe at history camp yeah. and how a shoe can protect your family from witches. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, the, so what you would do is you take a shoe uh, that was very well worn and that's important. Not a new shoe. Yeah. It can't be new shoes. Those won't help. It has to be an old beat up, beat up shoe. Like you ran a marathon in this shoe, probably. <laughs> or or you worn the shoe for several years and there's no way to repair it anymore. Like really, really worn out. Um, and that's important because so the the very thing a witch is trying to take from you is your essence or a little bit of your soul. And so what does that have to do with shoes? Well, uh, at the end of a long day, you've run a marathon or whatever. You take off your shoes and you get that smell um that yeah that funk right that today we understand is your foot sweat sticking up your shoes happens to everybody well they thought that was literally your essence getting trapped in your footwear back in the day and so okay we've got these old shoes full of essence well hey that's what the witch is trying to steal from us so we take those shoes and we put them in the walls preferably near the fireplace near the chimney because that's a witch's favorite way to get into the house. And why there's so many hex marks near the, the fireplace is if you have all your doors properly, your doors and windows properly closed, the witch's easiest way to get in the house is to turn herself into a smoke or vapor and float down the chimney, come out into your, your house, turn back into a witch, and now she can take your essence at her leisure. So you have these shoes full of essence near the chimney. 
She's floating down. She senses the essence in the shoes and goes to check it out. And the witch goes into the shoe to try and steal the essence. And part of the legend of witches uh, back then was that a witch can't move backwards. So the witch goes into the shoe to steal the essence, can't back out of the shoe. You've trapped a witch in your old footwear. Just like you could trap a shark in your footwear. Right, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, witches were apparently very similar to sharks. Uh, (laughs) um, So that's what always fascinates me about witches is how complex the, the folklore around them was and how many layers of just, like, weird logic leaps were involved in deciding you could catch a witch with your old shoes. Has the the nice side benefit that a thrifty Puritan didn't have to give up a new expensive pair of shoes, only the ones that were beyond salvage. Yeah, right. That's, that it's very Puritan protection, because like, you know we never want to throw anything away, but we also don't want to use new things for something like throwing in the wall. So, oh hey, yeah, this works better with old shoes. What a coincidence! So, speaking of things in the walls, um, yeah. you described it at history camp finding near the shoes something you described as a spiritual midden uh what what's that we haven't 100 percent found one at the fairbanks house but we found things that might have been um so often the shoes could be sort of referred to as part of a spiritual midden but the general idea was that it would be a pile of items important to the family or to a specific family member that you're trying to protect um and it was a form of what's called sympathetic magic Think of it as, like, reverse voodoo. So, like, the idea of voodoo is you have something related to the person, you can hurt the person. This is you have something related to the person, it protects the person. Or the magic, the bad things happen to the stuff instead of the person. Really sort of creepy side note of this is what's called a puppet. Yeah, it's like a puppet, uh, but it's supposed to represent a specific person. Uh, it's almost, like I said, it's a reverse voodoo doll, pretty much. The idea was the poppet, it was usually made with the person's hair or fingernails or even blood or other things mixed into the stuffing of it. And the any evil magic intended for the person would go to the poppet instead. Um, or you would have uh, what's called witch bottles, which, again, same thing, various bodily things go into the bottle, uh, usually urine um, and other things. And then- I think I just read a quote from... I want to say it was Increase Mather. It could have been Cotton railing against the the urine experiment. Is is that what he would have been referring that's, to there? Yeah, that's almost certainly what he's talking about. Yeah, uh, or something very similar. Um, so yeah, people would take these bottles or or jars or whatever and stuff those into the walls uh, as another layer of protection from evil spirits and witches. Now, while we were prepping for this episode, Nikki and I had a healthy debate about whether a cat has been found anywhere at the Fairbanks house, or we just imagined because it seems so appropriate that we imagined one had been. Is there a cat in your wall or under your doorstep that you know of? Under not, your hearth, maybe. <laughs> not that I found, not that we found now. Um, there are other houses. I think where you got, there are other houses where they have found cats in the walls, but not at the Fairbanks house. Yeah. I know the three cranes tavern in Charlestown, which is also first period, very similar mm-hmm. time period. Um, when that was excavated, I want to say in the nineties or early two thousands, they did find a cat under the doorstep there. So maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm mixing the two up. Maybe. Yeah. Like it's in the same genre of protections was well, you could put shoes, you could put witch bottles, you could put cats. Yeah. All these things served roughly the same purpose. I hear the cat was dual purpose, both protected against witches and mice. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there was always that idea that, like, a thing that, if it did something when it was live or active, it would keep doing it if you preserved it. So, yeah, a cat that would hunt mice while it was alive would protect your house from mice when it was dead. It made sense to them. So, when when people think about witchcraft and charms and counter magic and, and hex marks, our minds probably go to the, the late 17th century, sort of the era of the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense of the when the markings you found in the Fairbanks house date from? Are they around that same period, earlier, later? Uh, it's interesting. I think... There's a lot of evidence to suggest they're from multiple generations. Um, and it's possible that um, some of them were from that era, the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so even though there were never any witch trials in Dedham itself, the people in Dedham would have absolutely heard about what was happening in Salem and probably would have reacted in, in somewhat of a dramatic fashion, I'm sure. So some of the marks, I think actually it, it seems possible that a lot of the marks that are in the hall nearest the, the main fireplace, the hearth, those appear to be older or um, they're at least they're carved deeper into the wood and, and they just seem like they might have been there longer. They seem like they've had time to be carved and then worn down a little. Uh, so those ones are probably the oldest. I think the majority of the marks actually come from the late 18th, early 19th century, though. Based on the the majority of them are found in the two wings of the house. Um, so, just basically, the house really has three sections. There's the original house in the middle. A west wing was uh, added around 1700, and then uh, but heavily modified around 1800, and then the east wing was added in 1800. Um, so, most of the marks show up in the two wings. Which so if those can't. weren't even constructed until around 1800, then they must be newer than that. That's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So that's why um, the timing actually works out that it's right around the same time as Ebenezer Fairbanks Jr. and Jason, um, right around that same time as them. So, Daniel, I have a question about, I guess, the uh, newer wing, which is you just said is around 1800. So I will preface this by saying that would not necessarily identify as a believer of the supernatural. I would say I am optimistically curious, but uh, Mm -hmm. turn to science first. So the first time I visited the house, I think was before uh, you took over the curatorship of the house. And, um, you know, we looked at the hex marks on the mantle, but we didn't really talk about anything else in the house beyond that. And um, we were in that wing for a tour, and I was so uncomfortable in that wing. Like, I don't know. I've never really had an experience like that in another place where I really was just uncomfortable and a little scared, and I really wanted to leave. (laughs) And then I saw your talk at history camp, and it all kind of made sense. Right. So tell, tell us more. Uh, so first, I've sort of to respond to your first comment. Uh, I consider myself an optimistic skeptic. What I mean by that is, uh, I, I believe the potential for stuff. This stuff is very real. There's a lot about this universe we don't understand. But my bar for evidence is very high. You got to do a lot to convince me something's paranormal. That being said, I've been here for about two and a half years, and I have seen a lot of, heard, experienced a lot of stuff I cannot explain. 
Um, now, one thing about the, the West Wing is I'm sure the part of the house you were referring to, because actually whenever we have people who consider themselves sensitive or, or a medium or anything like that, they almost always get a feeling of, of dread or just sort of uneasiness in the yeah, West I'm Wing. Yeah, I'm not a sensitive. And I'm like the opposite of that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I probably am, too. But um, but maybe you just picked up on something that night or whatever or that day. Um, because, yeah, um, we've had multiple people who are in the West Wing who, who have said, like, I, I need to leave. I, I can't be in this room. Some of them were mediums or sensitives. Others were just people who had no prior interest in the paranormal or, or anything, but just like had a weird feeling in that room, in that wing. Um, so you're definitely not alone in that. So yeah, that West wing really gives off a, a weird vibe. Interestingly, over in the East wing, um, the other newer part of the house, uh, there is one spot in the room where, um, on three separate occasions during a ghost tour, um, a woman has fainted in that room and they've always been standing in the exact same spot. It's always very brief. Like they sort of, they get really faint and they, they find a nearby chair. Uh, and I have a chair like right there just in case, cause it's happened three times now. Um, and, but like, and they're fine just, you know, seconds later, but, uh, it's just weird that it's always a woman and it, she's always standing in the same place. Um, and like I said, three times, uh, it stops being, you know, twice you can call it a coincidence. Three times it starts getting a little weird. So yeah, the, 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 the activity, uh, or the, the weirdness, the stuff that's hard to explain definitely seems to be mostly in the, the wings, the East Wing and the West Wing. So if those wings date from around the time of the, the family's reversal in fortunes, we, we mm-hmm. might say, they're looking more to these sort of supernatural forms of assistance. Does that reveal a sort of like a sense of desperation with the family, do you think? I think so. Uh, yeah. Um, I think Jason is not the only member of the family that's having issues at that point. So we have um, Ebenezer Jr.'s aunt, um, so Ebenezer Sr.'s sister, uh, named Abigail Fairbanks, lives in the house um, her entire life, uh, dies when she's in her mid-80s, I think, and the doctor refers to her as dying of a palsy. And palsy was what they referred to pretty much any movement disorder, anything like Parkinson's, uh, tick disorders, Tourette's, anything like that, anything that involves involuntary movement, um, that's tends to be repetitive. They would just call all of that palsy. So she has something, um, that she died of and it, but before that it kept her from being self-sufficient It kept her from ever getting, it kept her from ever getting married or moving out. Um, so the, there's something, uh, a health issue that this woman has that affects her whole life. Then you have um, Ebenezer Jr.'s oldest son, Calvin Fairbanks, uh, effectively drinks himself to death when he's 22. Um, and that's only a year or two before Jason is put on trial. Um, and then you have Jason's younger brother, or no, sorry, Jason's slightly older brother, sorry. Abner Fairbanks was born two years before Jason and died almost exactly one month after Jason was hanged. And that is literally everything we know about Abner Fairbanks, which is weird. We have at least some information about everybody else in that generation, but I can tell you Abner's name and when he was born, when he died and nothing else about him, which suggests, um, there's something, something the family didn't want to talk about in relation to him. 
In your talk at History Camp, you made reference to signs in the house that the family might have been seeking supernatural assistance for what we'd consider a, a medical problem here in the, the material world. Do you yes. think that's related to Abner? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Abner and or Abigail, um, I think, are the, the reasons for the – maybe Jason to some extent um, because he had definitely had some medical issues too. But I think it's it's uh, Abigail and Abner are both more likely uh, the reasons why they would go to these lengths. So what what is or what was found in the west wing of the house that you believe connects to a sort of a, a medical issue? First off, the, uh, the a room in the west wing has by far the most hex marks. Um, it has uh, a, a full half of all the hex marks in the house are in one small room. And uh, somewhat unsettlingly, that room has a lock on the outside of the door. Now, part of why I think there's this sort of, like, medical and magic connection is because um, at the time, people did not understand these movement disorders. Like, they knew there was a medical source of things like what they called palsies. But then there's stuff like uh, epilepsy and anything that causes seizures, which is just completely beyond them in 1800. And uh, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, epilepsy was viewed as a punishment by the gods in ancient Greece. And so there's this long-standing, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, there's this feeling that epilepsy or seizures or anything like that is something supernatural, something otherworldly. And so it's pretty easy to make that make that leap between the magic and the, the medical issue. And so other things that uh, support this possibility... Um, so again, the majority of those hex marks in that room are the St. Andrew's cross and St. Andrew. Um, one of the things he's the saint of is protection against disease, specifically, uh, seizures and, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and, and epilepsy. And then on further inspection, I realized that right out in front of that door with the lock on it, uh, on the floor, there is a nail, a brass nail driven into the center of one of the boards. And all the other nails in the house are iron. There are no other brass nails I've found anywhere else. So, okay, why is one brass nail in the middle of the floor? So I did a lot of research and found very little for very long. And then eventually I found this one academic paper. And the um, the person who wrote it was, was saying that they had found several texts that suggest that if someone has a seizure or an epileptic fit... What you do is you watch where, uh, when they have their fit, they're going to collapse. So you watch where their head lands, and then you drive a nail into the ground where their head landed, and that will effectively pin the epilepsy to the ground, and it will cure them. And I think that's what that nail is doing there, is that it was an attempt to use this old folk magic trick to try and take somebody's issues away, somebody's epilepsy or something similar. Uh, away and um i'm i'm assuming it probably didn't work well it probably worked about as well as medicine at the time yeah right enough, it, which is pretty much not at all I, I, and that's i think uh sort of the crux no matter why this stuff was so prevalent is that it was it's just as effective as any medicine just as effective as prayer um it all worked roughly the same amount of time so everybody had their reason to be that they were right, you know. I think you described some other marks in the same room. Was there a cancer symbol, I think, that you said sort of reinforced the idea that they were looking for protection against disease? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's um, in the hall right near the door into that room. 
uh, is the symbol for the, the zodiac symbol, Cancer. Um, and Cancer is another symbol that uh, the, the sign will protect you from disease. Again, yeah, there are a lot of hex marks, and a surprising number of them are specifically uh, protections against illness, rather than just general evilness. So, yeah, that's that's what leads me to um, strongly believe that there's um, some fairly serious illness in the family around around the same time as the events uh, with Jason. So I know at, at history camp, you gave an example of what modern, so-called modern medicine at the time, the, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century would have had to offer for somebody suffer, suffering from epilepsy. Uh, what would have gone into a cure like that? Uh, a variety of things that we know today would um, not be good for you. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, the 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 short list here is um, uh, red valerian root, uh, pulverized uh, castor, as in mm. castor oil, uh, cursin, which is um, pretty much um, similar to um, quinine, the stuff they use for malaria, cinnamon. That certainly helps. Huh. Uh, folic acid, gel up. So anyway, um, infused frigid wine, garlic, <laughs> pulverized. They, they use all these weird abbreviations back then and just expect you sure. to know what they mean. So, so far, valerian root, probably the most helpful thing. It won't actively yeah. kill you at least. Yeah, right. Um, well, that's the thing. None of these will by themselves kill you. It's the fact that um, what you have is three or four... Um, purgatives, things that make you throw up, mm. you have several things that will give you um, the opposite, let's put it that way, um, several things that just do nothing whatsoever, um, a few things that will give you, um, like, give you a fever just right off, and, uh, and, and then cinnamon to freshen up your breath. Yeah, and then the cinnamon, yeah, which will definitely help the most out of any of those. That um, just helps it go down they, a little sweeter. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, they did originally believe um, a lot of things that we now think of as um, like cooking items started out as medicines, including uh, cinnamon, peppermint, uh, Coca-Cola. Of course, that originally had Coke in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a lot of these, they thought cinnamon was actually something that would help. But yeah, it turns out, yeah, it would just make your breath smell nice. But uh, that experiment, another thing... Um, that I found in one of those these books to give an idea of just how far medicine had gotten at this point. Um, talking about epilepsy, those who have it in the second degree, the worst version, are imagined by the vulgar to be possessed by the devil. It has been observed that the epilepsy, especially the essential epilepsy, is very much governed by the moon. So, in back-to-back -back sentences, he's calling people who think it's demonic possession vulgar, and then saying, oh yeah, it's caused by the moon, not not the devil. So, And this isn't a medical textbook, um, that, that passage. But if it's that widespread of a belief, you can certainly see why somebody would be grasping at every straw, even the supernatural straw. Exactly, yeah. Like, even doctors are talking about how it's affected by moon phases and... The more I study medical history, the more I appreciate modern medicine. That's... Yeah, it's certainly one of Nikki's refrains. Oh, wouldn't you like to go back and see Victorian Boston? No, only if I can take modern medicine. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that's something I always sort of, uh, sort of get people to think about at the house. You know, you have this old house, no running water, no electricity, no heat. 
and talking about, you know, the, the medical conditions they had to deal with and the, yeah, you didn't want to go, you don't want to go back in time. That's all. No, no. <laughs> I mean, the smell alone. Was <laughs> the essence. <laughs> yeah. The essence, the essence exactly. of the there, 17th there century. A, <laughs> yeah. There was a whole lot of essence going around. Um, sort of a little backstory when I got, sorry, when I was applying for the job, I was talking with the prior curator and the board, the, the president of the board and some other people who, who were here. And I actually asked, like, are there, you know, is a really old house. People lived in it for, you know, over 200 years. Any ghost stories? And everybody was like, no, 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 no ghosts, nothing. And so I take the job and part of the live, the part of being the curator of the Fairbanks house is you actually live in another building on the same property. And so I moved in and I'm starting my job. And then everybody I talked to is like, let me tell you about the ghosts. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I guess there are ghosts. And I got all these stories. And um, and having worked in in this sort of thing before, I I, I gave tours of uh, ghost tours in Boston for three years. And I've always had an interest in this stuff. So I was like, I realized there was enough material here to to make a, a, a ghost tour. And I had heard from other museums that, uh, like the Mark Twain House is a great example, who have had fantastic success adding ghost tours. Wait, and is so- the Mark Twain House haunted by Mark Twain? No, it's uh, one of his daughters, I think. Oh, because I love Mark Twain. Yeah. Greatest um, American of all time. He's cool. Uh, I definitely I recommend his is uh, that museum both during the day and at night. I would go to Ooh. like I'd go on a daytime tour and a nighttime tour. Uh, really great museum, really well run. Um, so you know, my wife and I moved in, and everybody's telling this these stories. And about a week in, uh, my wife and I, while we're getting ready for bed, it's a little late. It's like one in the morning, and we're um, we're talking about all these stories people have been telling me. And one of them was that the ghosts would set off the motion alarms. Um, and part of why they wanted the curator on, on site is those motion alarms go off in my apartment. And so, uh, yeah, the alarm goes off, uh, this, like, uh, as we're talking about how the alarm goes off, uh, so I go and check and it's, uh, um, a motion alarm in one of the upstairs rooms. And so I, I turn off the alarm, I reset it, it doesn't go off again, you know, figure it, well, that's, that's good for tonight, I'll check it in the morning. And in the morning, nothing's out of place, nothing weird. Um, and this happens repeatedly uh, from um, from then, roughly once every week or two, always between 1 and 3 a.m. And it only happens uh, if I've if it's been too long in, in the year, and I haven't given, because we only give ghost tours in the fall. So like in early spring, when I haven't talked about the ghost for a while, it'll go off once or twice. And then I'll go in and like just yell at the ghosts like you're, I'm going to talk about you later it's we're in the off season there's no one here to talk to about you and then they'll stop going off again um so this is definitely one of those things where it's hard to be a non-believer when this is happening like it's that's not a raccoon in the eaves or anything yeah exactly well that's the thing so it would always be the same room uh the mm-hmm. east wing chamber so the second story in the east wing and the motion sensor in that room is about halfway up the wall. So there's no way like a rat or a mouse would set it off. It'd have to be something fairly large. And there's no evidence of anything large enough to set that off in that wing. And there's no holes in the wall big enough for one to get in and out of. But something's setting off that alarm. And uh, actually, there was one of the time, one of the last times it went off. 
Um, one of the t- there's a rocking chair in that room, and it had uh, rotated about 45 degrees overnight um, and set off the alarm. And people have seen the same rocking chair rocking on its own, that sort of thing. Wait, is that the chair people are supposed to sit on when they pass out? No, no. <laughs> that, that's a modern chair that's on the first floor. This is a rocking chair up up on the second floor. Ah, on the second floor. Um, and one thing I like to tell people who are a little um, uh, wary is that um, whatever is in that house, it's friendly. Uh, nobody's ever been attacked or hurt in any way. My thought is just whatever's in the house now is, is just uh, family members protecting their house like they did in life. They're just watching after it, um, keeping an eye on things. Um, so there's really, there's nothing, nothing bad has, uh, at least paranormal, nothing bad and paranormal has ever happened <laughs> in that house. But yeah, a lot of interesting, you know, a lot of weird stuff that I, I cannot explain. So finally, Daniel, before we let you go, uh, please tell our listeners where they can find more information about you, the Fairbanks house, and where they can follow all your activities online. The Fairbanks has a website, um, fairbankshouse.org. Um, that was just recently updated. It's very nice. Um, and then we have a Facebook page, the Fairbanks house. If you just look up Fairbanks house on Facebook, you get some weird Facebook thing that is, but if you look up the Fairbanks house, that's actually us. So fairbankshouse.org and the Fairbanks house on Facebook, not, not not just Fairbanks house. Yes. (laughs) Well, Daniel Neff, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about folk magic and hex marks at the Fairbanks house, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 178. We'll have pictures and floor plans of the Fairbanks house, as well as some photos of the hex marks we added to our own house. Like everything else in the world, the Fairbanks house is closed right now. Their spring opening is scheduled for May 1st, but in this season of coronavirus, it's probably a good idea to check fairbankshouse.org before showing up. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming events and Devil's Dominion, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 